Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my Cottat, the man who thinks Oi looks like Jar Jar Binks, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so uh, to, to defend myself, I almost <laughs> always ignore every description of every character. So mm-hmm. if you ask me to, like, describe a character, it's just whatever I feel like it is. It isn't <laughs> what they say in the book. Yeah. It's just funny because I'm finally, for the first time ever, watching Star Wars Clone Wars. And so now every time there's a Jar Jar Binks episode, I'm like, <laughs> Oh, so there's a um, and this is an aside, but I, I think everybody will get a kick out of this. There, there is a, a 99% invisible episode where they talk about uh, the books that are written about the movies, like the uh, novelization of movies. Oh yes, I love a novelization. Uh-huh. And like, it turns out that the novelists never actually get to see the movie before they write the novel. That makes a lot of sense now yeah, how so, some of those novelizations go so one of the big funny ones is that um yoda what color is yoda green well if you're reading the script and you haven't seen the movie yet you don't have a color for yoda oh no <laughs> so in the book he's blue oh no <laughs> oh my god my favorite is have you ever read anything about the gremlins novelization no i have not Oh my god. So in the book there's the whole thing about how Gizmo was created by this guy named Mogterman. What? Yes, and there's this really funny blog where someone reads through the whole book and like is basically doing like what we're doing but of the novelization of Gremlins and it's called A Pox on Bo- Mogterman because the book ends with him saying goodbye to Billy and he can't he Mogterman did not give him the gift of speech so he can't tell him how he really feels about him. So it's like <laughs> like his internal dialogue is A Pox on Mogterman. <laughs> <laughs> I love a novelization. They're so weird. Oh, that's great. All right. Uh, That was my aside. I like it. All right. So let's talk about what we have planned for this episode. So obviously we are going to be talking about Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 2, The Girl in the Window. And then we are going to have, uh, we have a question from the Facebook group that we'll be able to talk about a little bit. And it's about like perspectives in the book. And we're going to talk about episode two of The Stand. And then for those who are sticking around for the extended episode, after the fact, we are going to be, because I am very cruel, (laughs) I selected a movie for us to review, just the two of us. We're going to be talking about 1992's epic Sleepwalkers. I mean, you know, I don't think it's nearly as as dogged as you you were putting it out there. It's okay. I didn't hate it, but okay. we'll talk about that in the after show. There, but I swear, there's a reason I picked it. It wasn't just to be like this movie's bad. Ha ha ha! Like there, there's a tie-in. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> All right, cool. So before we get into the book, though, can you do me a favor and let our listeners know what our spoiler policy is? Uh, like a snake that can treat you like no, no other man can. <laughs> no. We will let you know when the spoiler zone crawls up into your lap. <laughs> oh, DJ. Oh. So upsetting. Now that one makes sense. I tried to use that in the previous podcast and realized <laughs> that it was not in the chapter. We were on. I was just kind of like, huh, 
okay. <laughs> but now I know, and I wish I could go back to those days when I did not. <laughs> oh, those salad days. All right. So where did we leave off, Deej? Rio was like um, having kind of a rage fit because her ball's not yes. working. Turns yeah. out if she's really angry, she can't uh, operate the pink orb to see what's going on around people. And that anger boiled up in her, and she's you know throwing sort of a temper tantrum. And she's also upset that she can't get her revenge on, oh, Miss Pretty and Young, uh, because mm-hmm. Susan didn't cut her hair off like she was supposed to. Uh, so that's basically where we left off. Yeah. And then we cut to this sort of like world building bit where Stephen mm-hmm. King sort of talks about the stuffy men and the little baskets of, of treats that they're carrying and the huntress moon and her filling her belly. And, and, and it just kind of describes this like, almost Halloween-esque yeah. uh, feel, but in a sort of foreign land, almost mm-hmm. done historically. So, like, all of the scarecrows are sort of handmade and, like, different colors than you'd expect. Uh, they, Stephen King describes them as having white faces. Is that what a, I thought scarecrows in our world were, like, orange heads? Well, they're usually, like, made of burlap, so they're, like, kind of tan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so the descriptions are a little bit different, but it's, like, it really paints this picture of a, of a harvest going on with the moon over the over the horizon and then rains coming in and people sort of having injuries and yeah. uh, struggling with the work that needs to be done before the seasons change and things move on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's another good part of, of world building. We get a little bit more about the fall culture there. And I feel like it definitely really enriches the world in the same way that the chapter did last time where we were kind of leading into this period of time. It also reorients us on how much time has passed. It's just an effective way of kind of keeping a clock in an interesting way. And it also kind of reinforces the idea of what exactly is going to be lost when the world moves on. There is something very charming and quaint about it. And yes, we know there's like an undercurrent of corruption, but at the same time, like the culture itself does have that feeling, like the idyllic rural rural feeling. And since we know where the world is headed... I kind of felt a little like this is what we lost and it's pretty sad. Well, it's also a little dark too. I mean, yeah. you start out with like, oh, you know, sort of I I close my eyes and almost imagine like a, a fly through shot of like these scarecrows in the fields and like cars or, you know, carts yeah. driving down roads. And then it's like, and some people broke their leg. Yeah. <laughs> it got yeah. stuck in the mud and more time is spent getting the carts out of the muddy ground than actually harvesting. And yeah. it's a dangerous time. That is and, true. And you underline the dangerous time because, you know, what are we coming up against? Well, we know that yeah. some folks are coming in from, you know, uh, an, another part of the barony yeah. and that doom and gloom is ahead, right? Yeah. And I mean, there's, again, it always comes back to this sort of metaphor of like reaping, you know, you reap what you sow, right? So all the seeds that have been planted all throughout this story by all of our different characters, all of that is going to get sown at, or reaped at this point, Right. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing we should talk about is the we get the description of the moon. Now, we know that this is the Huntress moon already, but I don't know about you. When I heard the Huntress moon, I was picturing something very like Diana or, you know, a female version of the archer from Sagittarius, like very mythical, kind of like beautiful, right? But we get the description of it and it says, so now the Huntress filled her belly, as the old timer said, even at noon, she could be glimpsed in the sky a pallid vampire woman caught in the bright autumn sunlight. So 
though this is a much creepier and more disturbing description and and it kind of follows this pattern the last moon was like basically like a krampus and now we have this vampire pallid vampire archer i think it's creepy on a couple levels for one thing the vampire mythology or the vampire um mythologies her if her belly is grown full is it from eating because then that would mean that she's taking something she's filled her belly with whatever oh okay um, but then there's also another idea like the full belly this has been a book about a lot of banging going on with ro- <laughs> that's what i, mean, I thought like, it was yeah and i was like that sounds a little bit like a pregnancy illusion which is very concerning with our little teen lovers so there was just a lot of kind of subtle stuff here that was making me nervous and i kind of wanted to know what you thought about the moon if you had any theories because we know that it's been thematically significant throughout the books so i didn't pick up quite as much on it as you did but what what i thought of was just uh susan basically carrying roland's kid and Mm -hmm. she points that out almost like immediately the first time they have their little love session is that she's like you could have already put a baby in me right it kind of reinforces that in a way that's making me very nervous yeah and so then like that makes the stakes that much higher for susan as a character and roland as a character uh going forward to to rescue her and his unborn son or daughter from you know the clutches of whatever right yeah it's not it's i mean the thing is is if they're trying to keep things secret no matter how long this goes on, if that that's that becomes a new ticking clock. Like there's no way they're gonna be able to hide that. Yeah. So, it's not great. It's not great. I and mean, we don't know. We don't know, but I kind of feel like we know a little that the the moons give us hints about the content of the section. And I yeah, feel and like the, there's a I couple there things was happening. Pictures here. with the moon. Because yeah. I kind of want to know what it actually looks like. Not yeah. a, a vague, a literary version of that, because it, it's it's right. really you can't wrap your head around like what that actually looks like when Stephen King describes it. Right. I mean, well, and if you think about what like the man in the moon, right, that's something we're familiar with. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, you have to really kind of stretch to see it. Like, Oh, okay. I can kind of see it. And I wonder if it's the same kind of thing where, you know, it's just sort of whatever, however their astrological shit works. Like it just kind of like the light hits it different. I don't know. Or if it's, well, and then is it the same moon? Like does every, every version of earth uh share the same moon or do they have like a completely different moon i don't know i have hmm. no idea i mean the idea ultimately is that like all the stories are connected and i i'm trying to think does he have anything that is not like very does he have anything sci-fi i mean you have lud and and all of that stuff but i'm into the point where it's like another planet another sort of like if the astronomy is different Oh yeah, I don't know. Um, no. I know that there's a a moment I think in the drawing of the three where they talk about the stars, mm-hmm. and the stars are not correct for where they're at. Okay, good point. Yep. Okay, so there could very well be different moons. Yeah. <laughs> and don't call me out on that, guys, because if you know, no, no, that no, I'm the, wrong. you're you're right because there's a the whole thing about like how it's you know Eddie looks up at the stars and now his his the stars he's grown up with look unfamiliar and like yeah, and I him. thought so it, there was right. something about the North Star too, like it doesn't, yeah. it's not the same. Right. Roland uses a different star to track their directions. Old star and old mother. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Okay, so it could could very well be that we just start dealing with a completely different moon that was pot-marked in a different way and gives it its own it. interesting, interesting style. Yeah. I like that theory. Yeah, why not? 
<laughs> I just pulled that one out of nowhere. Um, okay, so uh, we get this beautiful description of what's going on and, like, basically fall in this area. And then we cut back to Rhea. She's still furious, and she's basically decided that she's going to crack open the old graph barrel <laughs> and drink herself into oblivion. Right. Um, but her irritation is doubled by the fact that she realizes her graph barrel is empty. Yes. And this really makes her upset. But then she has an idea of how to get back at Susan. And she already knows that Susan and Roland are, are sleeping together. And so she starts to think about a possible plot to where she could maybe let someone know like Susan's aunt um to sow the seed and let the cat into the barn so to speak yeah and this brings a little bit of a joy to old Rhea, and so she decides to plop down in her chair and call her cat over so she can lick him erotically while oh her snake god. crawls up on her oh lap my god. and i i guess gives her fellatio i don't really know what a snake does but um, i mean i think it's more more penetrable yeah it's <laughs> it's more invasive let's say Uh, now uh now who's dad talking (laughs) (laughs) i was just like stephen king no this is a lot even for you my friend you only have two stars on this so um Uh, yeah i mean i think ria man she is the result of what you get when you just like lean in and embrace hatred i think somehow she snuck out of the star wars like level of the tower and ended up in dark tower because she has big big sith energy (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's another thing i want to highlight though while we're while we're still here and that is um the orb she's Mm -hmm. sort of while she's like thinking about her plot uh she's also sort of internally acknowledged that you know uh it's not her item it doesn't belong to her but she hopes that they forget that she has it right i mean we we focus a lot about on roland's addiction up until this point you know with susan and like how all of the metaphors around his feelings with her and the way descriptions of him have switched from like this beautiful like wind metaphor to Mm -hmm. to addiction but i mean she is definitely nursing an addiction of her own here she she's very like my preciousing this orb i do think it's interesting that she comes up with this plan and she's like so happy. But then when the orb starts working again, she spends the whole day just staring into it and doesn't enact her plan until she doesn't eat. She doesn't drink. She just like stares into this thing. Yeah. And the it, description of what she watches, is just like yeah. basically the, the worst of all human characteristics right. everywhere. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It kind of makes you wonder like, why, Again, I'm still like obsessed with like how does this orb work? And I know I can find out. I could Google it. I could read the concordance, whatever. But I, I'm trying to like stay unsullied. I'm going to read up all about it after the book. But it seems like it, is it her picking the things or is it the ball kind of creating a content algorithm for her? It's like ooh, suffering. <laughs> and then if that's the case, why is it focusing on Roland? And I it comes back to this idea. I feel like it has it definitely has its own agenda. It's not just a tool. I think it's using just as much as it's appearing to be used. Well, then do you think that the distraction that it's providing of uh, Rhea from going to actually uh an actor plan to just being kind of like a zombie person watching this all day is a sign of it doing, you know, what it wants and not what she wants? I do. Okay. I do yeah. kind of I kind of I I kind of think you're right. Um, 
the the orb it's just still like like you said we don't really know what its agenda is yeah as an inanimate uh well a quote-unquote inanimate object um uh-huh. it seems to be doing stuff but to what end right i and, mean the person who knows most about it in the book is like won't curse into it because she's concerned of something inside or on the other side of it which mm-hmm. again like kind of reinforced my theory yeah i think you might be right um so now we're we're back at the uh uh ranch with uh keith burt and elaine and roland comes rolling in <laughs> i don't know how many times i can say that <laughs> get a we need like a sad trombone to play every time i do that <laughs> uh, and, and so roland's kind of like in La La Land, he's obviously just gotten back from another uh, uh, romp in the grass with Susan. Yeah. And uh, Keith Bird's like, he's basically livid. Yeah. Um, he he is yeah. smoking. And the description Stephen King gives of his interaction is that Roland basically is sort of duck backing this, you know, water rolls off the duck's back. Uh, every, every time uh, Keith Bird makes a statement that would have normally have been a pretty decent jab at Roland. Yeah. Roland just kind of is like, nope, that's not the case. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the case. And, and the infuriation gets driven even further because uh, Keeper is actually sort of looking for an argument. Right. And he doesn't get it. Right. And so backing up a second, like the internal dialogue for him is basically him r- ranting and raving about all of the ways that Roland is enjoying himself with Susan. Yeah. And then ranting and raving about Roland being first. Yeah. And ranting and raving just in an emotional and like almost a uh, hormonal level about everything Roland. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to determine through this and, and the characters even interacting sort of allude to this, whether he he's mad at Roland because Roland is neglecting his duties. Uh He's mad at Roland because Roland has susan mm-hmm. or it's purely hot jealous rage that he doesn't have susan mm, i think it's all of the all above of them? yeah i think it's all of the above I, I i actually kind of applaud how complicated this is because this feels very real to me yeah especially and- like for a teenager I mean, he's surprisingly emotionally self-aware for a teenager, but I mean, think about like, think about where you were at this time. These are all firsts and they're under this enormous amount of pressure. And so I think he, and then not only is his friend like making mistakes, but he, he's completely like mentally checked out and you know, you can't get a rise out of someone, how that can like just exacerbate your anger and then you just like push harder and harder and harder and get angrier and angrier and angrier like this feels like a very real scenario to me i have this is my reoccurring nightmare so this really spoke to me i have all these dreams where i'm like really angry with someone and they're like just dismissing my feelings and i'm just like yelling louder (laughs) and louder and they're just like no no passive Um, you never had any friends that just aren't argumentative at all and so you you have a discussion with them, and you're like, hey, what do you want to eat? And they're like, whatever you want. I mean, yes, I have experienced that. It's not quite exactly the same. Um, but, yeah, I, t- I know what you mean. Like, I can deal with someone who's, like, kind of passive, but it's more like when they're just, like, completely dismissive of your feelings, and you're, like, trying to explain, and you just cannot get through. That's that. I, I recognize this frustration in Cuthbert. I think this is 
I, I very much identified. I, I kind of fell in love with Cooper and his he, like angry Cooper is my speed. <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally get this guy. I like that this chapter starts with that Arthur meme where he's just like clenching his fist. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you don't you know that meme where it's just like that yellow hand and it's like in a fist of rage like that yeah, is yeah. him because he's like trying to un he's so angry he's like clenching his fist and he's like trying not to but they just keep curling back up it's so illustrative of exactly how furious Cruthbert is at this point well and uh, as, as roland's like coming in like stephen king basically alludes to multiple arguments that these mm-hmm. guys have had but then immediately says they're not really arguments because Roland doesn't argue. He just says yes or no and, and sort of shrugs it off. He doesn't and that, deign to argue. That makes it so, so much more irritating. And you can see sort of from um, from Keeper's perspective, uh, he wants first he wants to send a pigeon off to like let everybody know what's going on there. And Roland kind of shoots him down. And then there's some other choices that they, they want to make, and, and he gets shot down again. And and these every time he's shot down, Roland not arguing with him about it, just telling him no, makes it even more painful for him mm-hmm. to endure these. Right. And then the thing is, is Roland doesn't provide a very good explanation as to why right. this isn't okay. It, to the point where basically he says, well, what are they going to tell us that we don't already know? Like... It, if it gets here, it'll probably be too late. Um, if they provide us anything, it would be comfort. Uh, and that's not useful. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, you know, you can see uh, Roland. I almost think Roland's a bit wrong in this. No matter what, uh, yeah. sending the warning out would, would no, uh, not do any damage that I could think of. Can, can you right. think? Right. Uh, I mean, frankly, I, to- I what I think is great about this is that Cuthbert is angry at him and his the, his feelings are very valid because mm-hmm. you're right like you can totally understand why he'd be like let's just let them know i mean maybe they won't get here in time maybe they will but like they should be looped in bottom line yeah. and you can understand why having that dismissed is extremely frustrating and and having him checked out right now is extremely frustrating so like i you can get on board with why Cooper is so angry i do think it's worth noting that the o- the only person whose perspective we're not seeing is Roland's. So we are he's totally a black box to us at this point. We have no idea if what he's doing there is logic to it. If he does have a plan, if there are other things in motion that he's not communicating, which is not a I mean it's a problem that he's not communicating them. But I do think it's interesting that we have no idea if what he the perception that he is presenting is actually accurate or if there is some method behind his madness. So there is a moment where um, Stephen King and uh, Cuthbert kind of shine a little light on what uh, Roland is is got going on when yeah. uh, he offers up uh, this plan to go and tell the sheriff that basically um, they're going to move on to the drop and start counting there, but they're going to present him with a list of all the places that they're going to go in advance and out in infinitum so that they can move stuff around in advance of those guys showing up to count stuff to stay ahead of of whatever they're supposed to not see and the light shining portion happens when roland reacts with he starts to almost wane and not care about it and then as it becomes clear that this is a good idea actually elapses into a bit of joy and claps him on the back and tells him you're a genius and and this is actually 
this is a moment where it's interesting because uh, Keith Burt sort of sort of slinks back. Yeah. Because he's not used to being praised in that manner or being mm-hmm. called the genius because he's always been shadowed a shadow to Roland. Mm. And then getting it from Roland, who he has a lot of admiration for, it sort of almost feels like he's like, well, if you wouldn't been so dense, you would have thought of this first. Yeah. Right? I, what struck me in that interaction was how obtuse Roland was. Yeah, and so that's the light I'm talking about. Because yeah. basically, by by Stephen King point, uh, painting it in that manner, it's showing that Roland's like... You say black box, but uh, maybe empty box would be more. I mean, that's the thing is it it could very well be that there's nothing there. I'm just saying, I think it's interesting that we have no idea. Yeah. But you're right. Like, I mean, the Roland we know now would not be clapping Cuthbert on the back. He would recognize that his friend was furious at him, but he seems completely oblivious to the fact, like when he goes in for the hug that in his mind, Cuthbert's like, I want to choke you to death. (laughs) <laughs> I physically want to murder you. And Roland now, you know, like if you think about the Eddie stuff, he was very aware that Eddie wanted to murder him. He There were, there were no illusions there, but what, he seems complete, so checked out that his best friend who he's known literally his whole life is re- is like on the verge of wanting to strangle him. And he's just like, yeah, buddy, good job, good job. And you're just like, Roland, come on, read the room, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and th- then there's a moment where um, Roland basically takes the proposal that he's just been given and turns it back around and says, okay, why don't you two go take care of this tomorrow? Oh, I know. He likes and, it because it's a good plan and because it means he's going to go bang Susan some more. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's another like almost uh, a needle in, in Keith Burt's uh, eye yeah. as that happens. And then uh, Elaine actually has to step in right. and shout him down and be like, listen, man, you're... you're- our leader and you need to act like a leader and it doesn't matter which one of us goes with you but you need to go there everybody sees you as a leader including us mm-hmm. and you get again another light on roland is like a blank stare like what well, i was never made the leader yeah you know where's my official charter as leader yeah. and then he has to explain it to him you know in frank detail about how roland has the guns he is seen by the leader, not just by the town, but also by uh, Elaine and Keith Burt. So then it, it, his yeah. reaction to it is so poor. Yeah, you can really see the evolution of their dynamic. You think about when at the beginning, the first time they want to confront Roland about something, they don't. and They're scared to say anything because they have this great respect for him. Mm-hmm. And here, Cuthbert's like, you won your guns, although I can hardly believe it myself the way you've been the last few months. He never would have spoken to him in that way before. Yeah. So you can see that there has been some major attrition in the dynamic of their relationship and that res- they're losing that respect for Roland. They're still hopeful, obviously, because they have years and years of friendship, but there is a fragility to their friendship that has never existed before. Which is, this is like the worst time that could be happening. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and uh, you know, there's a, a moment where, um, I don't know if it's internal, or yeah, I think, I think pretty sure it's internal, but a- after Keith Burt's described what he visualizes Roland doing with Susanna. Yeah. From like her white skin to her, the orbs of her breasts and so on. Mm-hmm. Orbs. He... It orbs. Hello, yeah. orbs. <laughs> uh, he sort of like screams like she'll be the death of us internally to him. You know, it's, yeah. and that's the sort of frustration that they're all fighting up against. And then even when Roland finally accepts that he's the leader, 
Yeah. And that they were they can go together tomorrow to the sheriff's office. Like he just says, does that work for you? <laughs> and Keith Burst like, I'm down to the pound, you know, like Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Are it, you listening just... to the audiobook too, right? Yes. Oh, the actor the voice actor or the a narrator in this is so good in this section. I loved the mix of his voice, his internal voice versus juxtaposed against like the things that he says out loud that like yep. just drip with sarcasm down to the ground. So good. <laughs> it's just so good. Uh, so you got a, a lot of stars on this one. Have I covered everything or is uh, there pretty some... much? I just, the one last thing I want to say is so Roland is very frustrating in this book. Very, very frustrating, but I actually kind of appreciate and love the fact that he is such a flawed character. I think that's a big part of what makes him so compelling. King clearly wants us to be very frustrated and annoyed with Roland sometimes in this. And, and I think that that actually speaks to him being a really great character because and King being a really great writer, because I do think you can see that King sees a lot of himself in Roland. And I think that there would be some sort of temptation to write him as some sort of like superhero or moral paragon. But instead, we get this very fallible, very real in the most infuriating ways character and the way. And, and I think it makes that's part of what makes him such a beloved character is because he is real and he behaves like real people do. In some ways, he has admirable traits that we really identify with and flaws mm -hmm. that we also can really identify with and he, he, he's just such a complex character and well the the teenage business though um roland's still like when you first get introduced to roland at the very beginning of this flashback mm -hmm. he starts off as a powerful figure mm -hmm. uh, well thought and thinking and yeah. basically through this endeavor of this retelling of his past he devolves yeah yeah. And that uh, de-evolution of the character is going from a guy who's, you know, on top of everything, even to the point where he can get the drop on uh, people many, many years older than him. Mm -hmm. Now to the point where uh, his underlings are getting the drop on him. I mean, he can't even pay attention for a whole conversation. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I just think he, I mean, we've seen so many sides of Roland just four books in. He's a very rich character. I don't know. It just struck me in the section when I was just like, I'm ready to kill you, Roland. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> so the next day, the guys basically pack up on horse and uh, Roland and Keithbert head towards the sheriff's office to to bring their list of, of ranches that they're going to basically do counts on. And they get there and it, I guess it's raining outside and they're invited in and immediately we get a well actually i'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself yeah yeah um, this is this is when they're on the road so as they're headed towards the sheriff's office uh they head by the delgado ranch mm -hmm. and susan of all people is sitting in the window yes and roland goes to give her a kiss from his mouth you know hand gesture and realizes that's not a good idea and goes up to his forehead and gives her a little jaunty salute yes but uh -oh. dun, dun, dun. Lo, lo and behold, there's someone sleeky or slinking around outside uh, doing garden work. Mm -hmm. And actually, the way this is painted is um, her aunt is hiding almost behind one of the stuffy men. Yes. And it's like I almost some sort of like horror movie picture came to mind where it's like, a stuffy man, a lady with an, um, uh, a big hat pulled down almost to the edge yeah. of her eyes with dark shadows underneath of it, peering around the edge of the stuffy man, watching 
uh, Susan and yeah. Roland interact. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's something in- very sinister about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's this interesting thing that uh, Stephen King drops in there, just like out of the blue. He's like, in the last few weeks, uh, she's taken to talking to herself. Yeah. And yeah. that's new. Uh huh. And yeah. extra sinister. And the little bit, the the fleeting moments we get with Aunt Cord before we jump away, um, she's she's got like a lot of conflict and like internal screaming going on. Yeah. This, this yeah. business. It's like her trying to talk herself down, but she is verging on the hysterical. She is not. Her stress response has not been very good. Yeah. She started talking to herself. She And it, it, there's another scene coming up in a little bit where you really see physically the toll it's taking on her and the way that she's behaving and acting. She is cracking under this pressure. And yeah, it's it's not good. These are not between Rhea and now Cordelia. This is not good for our little our young lovers. Uh, so then w- the guys get to the sheriff's office. They're I will say up. one last thing before we move on. Just that okay. the girl in the window, This it's worth noting that Susan is mentioned one time previous to this in the very first book. He remembers Susan in the window, and this is this is that scene. Yeah, and yeah. and actually there's a moment where uh, Stephen King kind of like rambles off about yeah. how memories follow yeah. you. Yeah. And they like sit on the side of the road waiting for you to pass you pass them by and then they pick up all their stuff and and wait till you're gone and then follow in your footsteps and get ahead of you again. Yeah. 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 He he gets very poetic in this <laughs> in this part. And you're like, "Yeah, I get it, Stephen King. She haunts him." <laughs> she haunts him. Okay. Understood. Um no, so uh, they get to the sheriff's office. Um Roland and Keithbert uh basically have sort of a like a little interaction with Jonas. Jonas is in there and and uh Jonas says something um kind of um pointed about their counting and then Keith Burton is is normal uh quick quick wit is like you know how are your joints feeling buddy it's raining or outside it's him and Reynolds and he's like gives him a comment like oh the cold water or cold weather is cooled down your, up your acne. Box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, ooh, Cooper. Ooh. Shame. And then they have, Shame. Have to be reminded that they're uh, you know, they're not in a fighting stance anymore. And and Roland yeah. is like, you know, we're good to go. Which is is funny because neither Roland nor Jonas actually believe that. Right. And Jonas is there in a game with uh Deputy Dave playing castles. They've got a They've got a heater in there, most likely uh, filled up from the giant candle at the Sitco station. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> Deputy Dave. Oh, my God. Uh, apparently, it was taking a big old. Oh, that's Air Avery. Avery. Her Avery, yeah. Yes. And, and like, r- rolls out of there, you know. <laughs> Woo! That was a good one. We're <laughs> right through me. <laughs> Jesus. King has a very specific character in mind, Chief Avery. It is just like all farts all the time. <laughs> so, so we we cut away from that. Or, well, did, did I miss anything in there? Uh, well, I do think we need to talk about when they get there. Jonas is playing castles with Deputy Dave, and there's a a moment where Deputy Dave thinks he's making a smart move and kind of like exposes himself, and Jonas just absolutely destroys him. The thing is, is that Roland and Cuthbert both see this happen and 
what we find out, and this is again ahead of it. Uh, I'll, I'll wait till we get there. But oh no, like let's bounce around because I think these two need to be smashed together a little okay. bit. Okay, I mean, um, I do think it's interesting that Cuthbert looks at that and is like, "Hmm, this is concerning to me." Like he sees that as a warning sign, whereas Roland just maintains his like, "We're gonna do nothing." And on one hand, maybe that is the smart castle's move, but I don't think that Roland is responding in real time to the data that he is receiving. And there are a lot of very clear, quote unquote, veiled threats, both with the way that he plays castles, but the way he says, like, listen, I play to win. And well, he and actually he... tells like a little nursery rhyme about right. the milkmaid picking up the scorpion and carrying right. her across the river. Like, yeah. And the scorpion explaining that, you know, you, know uh, what I you was knew poisoned. I was poisonous. Yeah. Yeah. And I and that's he's saying it to Dave, but he's saying it to Roland. The problem yeah. is, is I'm not convinced he's I don't know that he is paying enough attention as an audience member, but maybe he is. And like I said, we just don't know. But it sure seems like he did not take he did not adjust his appropriately to what he witnessed in this room. Yeah, and the way Jonas like basically wipes the floor with him in this game of castles mm -hmm. is is uh, concerning. Uh, yeah. He he basically makes a move to where it, it seems as though he's lost and then he immediately wins. And I don't know what castling means, but I right. assume it's exposing your king or exactly. or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so Jonas is, exposes his king, but then comes in from the flank and just tears him apart. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Like ruthlessly. Um, and so, and I do think that he was trying to say something to Roland in that moment. Oh yeah, definitely. And then he's super mean uh, afterwards. The you know they ask if you want to play again, and he's like, "I, I would rather play with a weed eating dog than you." <laughs> yeah, Jonas. And then he just like savors the flavor of the anger and and um, consternation that he's brought yeah. up in the guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, like fuck Dave, Deputy Dave, but also I. I mean, I will say I. I, Jonas is a bad guy. He's the villain. He's the antagonist. I really like him. Is that weird? <laughs> it's kind of like the way I, I felt a little bit, uh, even more so than the way I felt about um, TikTok Man. I think he's a great villain. I think he's he's funny and he's mean and he's smart and he feels like a threat. I just think he's a really good villain. I think he's a well-created character and I enjoy him. I like being in his head. I think yeah. he's interesting. I, I mean, I don't know that he's as smart as he thinks he is. We'll see. But I do find him to be very compelling. Well, as a um, a failed gunslinger or yeah. attempt at a gunslinger, like, yeah. that that underlines the fact that he wasn't good enough to cut it or had something wrong with him. I mean, it could be a situation where he just jumped the gun, too. Like, maybe he was too impulsive, and then he got smacked down. And unlike Roland, you know, he, he lost. Is this like a Jedi training force where you're like, nope, you're too evil, son. <laughs> Maybe. They, yeah, that's why I'm saying. Like, I think I feel like the Star Wars universe and the Midworld universe are closer than we think. They might be neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so then we we jump around again to later in the day. Um, now we're back at the Delgado Ranch. And uh, Susan is uh, um, returning from doing some farm work and like, heads inside and her aunt is like sort of st uh, skulking in the shadows yes and like it's like susan and, and it frightens her so much that she almost 
spills this precious orange juice, which, you know, it, it's late in the season, so you can't get orange juice anymore. Right. Catches it just barely, and is like, eh, you startled the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. And immediately, Cordelia assaults her with, do you know those men? And and uh, um, Susan, in a panic, and almost like sort of having to like play out what the correct or incorrect answer is, thinks about it for a moment and decides that the only real solution is to tell her that, of course, she knows both of them. Yeah. And that you were there and I was introduced to him. And that's obviously not the the uh, response Cordelia is uh, alluding to. Right. And and so Cordelia like presses a little bit further and Susan uses that moment to almost lead her off the path. Yeah. Uh, if you want to be like that, I'll slap you. I <laughs> And her aunt, like, I can't tell in some of these situations whether it's feigned um, uh, 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 concern, uh-huh. or if it's legitimate concern, because when she says like, or I'll slap you, uh, her aunt's like, Susan, why would it be like that? Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and you're you're like, well, wait a minute, lady, you you don't care two squirts about this, right? This girl, and you're selling her off so that you can live a, a more prestigious lifestyle. Why would you care if she, you know, insults you and threatens to slap you? And I don't know. I think she has convinced herself that she's the good guy in the scenario and that Susan uh, is being, she's being cruel and she's being, you know, like, how could you do this to me after all that I've done for you? Personally, I found this section to be very cathartic. It was very satisfying to see Susan finally stand up for herself and to get the better of Cordelia, although albeit likely very briefly you know so i i don't think it'll last so i'm savoring this moment a little bit but it was kind of great to see her be like if you hit me i'm gonna slap you back and called her a bitch called her on her shit it was very very satisfying so i think where she messed up is if she would have just slapped her in that would have given her a perfect moment to just walk away yeah but instead she continued with the conversation except for we get this really cool moment where she oh yeah the shadow moment yeah 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 go ahead go ahead well basically she turns her back on cordelia because she kind of realizes that this conversation is not going to stop and that she is not a very good liar so she needs to exit stage left so she turns her back on her and then in the reflection in a jug because she uh she sees cordelia raising her fist to strike susan and she just kind of like lifts her hand in a block and it's just like don't ever raise your hand to me again you bitch (laughs) <laughs> and and it totally disarms Cordelia. But what I think is, I mean, it's a cool scene, period. No, but yeah. I think what's really interesting here is this description of her heart was beating madly, but still that awful clarity informed the world. Roland would have known it for what it was. She was seeing with gunslinger's eyes. So here's my question. Is seeing with gunslinger's eyes something anyone can do and you're just, tra- and you're trained, you're trained to do it? Or is it something that people are like a, an innate gift or talent that people are born with. And does that mean that in a different scenario, Susan would be a gunslinger? So for me, I took that to mean that uh, Susan was basically invoking the shine. Mm. So the gunslinger's eyes, because uh, really, if you think about all of the quotes we get with like Roland and the gunslingers, it's, 
it's all that um i see with my heart you know Mm -hmm. none of this like mind stuff but then the gunslinger's ability to solve problems and see around corners is sort of like a, a I guess I, maybe I'm going too far, but I, I felt like that's sort of a psychic-esque power. Mm, and so what I took from that and, and is basically that Susan's gunslinger eyes are her, like, seeing, you know. Right. And, and we kind of get a little bit of that when she notices that Rhea's spying on him. And right. some of her other sort of intuitions. Mm-hmm. And so this feels like the culmination of that where she's really sharpened up that ability to to see uh-huh does that seem yeah like a good i mean it could very argument? well be i kind of always took it as sort of like a hyper awareness but i i don't know that those things are mutually exclusive i think it could be that gunslinger's eyes are the ability to have this like very intense situational awareness but it could also be very much linked in with you know shine like shine so i think a little bit of column a a little bit of column b yeah sure why not yeah why not so what we find out during the course of this argument, sort of like uh, a spinning out, is that um, Aunt Cord pushes Susan to the point where uh, she says, swear on your father's grave, or swear on your father's name, excuse me. And at that point, Susan is uh, evaded and eluded as much as she can, yeah. but she will not cross that particular yeah. line. And so she refuses and storms out of the house. Yeah, And that basically is the signal that Aunt Cord was prodding at to find out yeah. uh, what, what's going on. Right, that's only heightened her already super intense suspicion. Yeah, and you got to remember from Aunt Cord's perspective, this is like her fortune, her livelihood, her not being sent west, mm-hmm. her her everything. Yeah. And if this dumb girl messes it up for her, right. then all is lost. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, we also get the underlying factor of her talking to herself and getting yeah, a I bit mean, nutty. This description of her when she like kind of almost pounces on Susan and she's like grabbing furniture around herself to steady herself. You really do get the sense that this is a woman on the edge. Yeah, she, she slips and stumbles cracking. a couple times. Yeah. And even the description of her working in the garden, she's specifically handling these uh, particular roots and they need to be chopped a certain way. And as she's going through the scenario of Susan and Roland interacting from window to, you know, edge of property, she's slicing the roots in half that she's otherwise supposed to be saving and basically ruining them. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a spot where we just heard a little bit ago that orange juice is precious. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she's she's cracking. She's not doing great. <laughs> and that's not that's bad. Like that makes her very um, unstable and, and unpredictable. Yep not good yeah uh trapped trapped in a cage i think there's a quote from uh everybody's favorite uh, uh band blind melon <laughs> or not blind melon dang it uh D- david corrigan right billy corrigan, billy corrigan? damn it <laughs> the 90s called they're revoking your card <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> blind melon, yeah i mean i And the thing is, is we know that there is no part of the way that Cordelia is thinking about how do I protect her? If she's made this mistake and we're in danger, no part of that is how do I protect Susan? It's it's strictly about how she's going to protect herself and what and the consequences she's facing. 
Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> and Susan running out to the barn is basically the admission of defeat in this situation, right? It's not good. It certainly yeah. didn't assuage any suspicion. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Ooh, better better go get some of that pig's blood. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm saying there, Susan. Yeah. Um, Right. So we cut back to the gang, and we kind of already talked about this a little bit, but um, Jonas and the sheriff are there, and finally the boys take off. And the sheriff and Jonas, Jonas less so, but the sheriff is sort of elated. He's like, great, now we have the answer. This is perfect. Those dumb fools are played right into our trap. And Jonas's leg hurts, and he's still feeling a little cranky, but he thinks about it for a second and describes a situation um, in the game that he was just playing where a good character or a good player of castles will sometimes like peek around the corner yeah. and then duck back in to hide their intentions mm-hmm. and make you think that they're doing what you think they're doing, but they're yeah. not doing what you think you're, you think they think they're, you're doing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like that three layers of abstraction type of thing, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so Jonas is like, if you you think you can beat me at castles, you got another thing coming. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a moment where, like, you realize that Jonas's intuition is also picking up on the fact that Mm -hmm. this this is too good to be true, that the boys would just go ahead and do this thing that makes it convenient and easy for them to continue on with their ruse. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely is a mirror scene to what's happening with Cordelia, right? Like, they're trying to kind of talk themselves down a little bit like hey maybe i'm overreacting to this but there's like their intuition is just sending up these red flags red flags and it's like to the point where they can't really ignore them anymore i will say the one thing in roland's favor is he does still seem to be somewhat dismissive of roland like he he keeps underestimating roland which is good that is a good thing i don't know how long that will last and yes he is suspicious but he's there's still that part of me he's like he's just a freaking kid he cannot he can't get the better of me and that's not necessarily true. So that's good. Um, the other thing we find out is is that he's still waiting on Latigo. And it's just interesting because it seems like with the exception of Roland and, and up until this last section right here, Susan, everybody is feeling the pressure. Everybody feels that they are in a pressure cooker and the temperature is just getting turned up, turned up, turned up, turned up. And some people are starting to crack a little bit. The only people that seemed oblivious to what's happening is Roland and Susan. Yeah. Which is again not great. <laughs> it's well, not great I, think, I think Roland's even worse off than Susan is because oh, Susan sure. um now she knows. Yeah. And like uh, despite the mm-hmm. fact that uh they're both in this sort of like love bubble, Susan seems to be reacting and concerned with the repercussions of their um intertwining more than Roland is. Except for that we know that she's we there's a little thing that's that, that cordelia says when we in that scene where she's in the field is that susan's mood has completely changed she went from being moody and angry to being sort of dreamy and happy and like Uh, her old self so as much as they think that they're being so discreet they're lipping their hands and she's just as like moon-eyed over this thing as roland was it's just she got confronted and woke up from it as opposed to roland is still half asleep Moon Knight, that's a good good choice for all of our movies. Ah, <laughs> you like that? Yeah, you see what I did there? <laughs> Taking it out of the park here, Rachel. Um, okay, so then we we cut to uh, uh, Roland Keithbert, and and Keithbert's actually like sort of elated. He's like, "Look at that! They swallowed it hook, line, and seeker. They yep, they believe us. They got this." 
And, and Roland's like, yeah. And then yeah. Keith Richards like, well, what, uh, you know, Roland, you know, now what do we do? Mm-hmm. And Roland's like, you move the stairs. And immediately Keith Richards is like, <laughs> yeah yeah to- i mean i felt so bad for cuthbert like he felt like it was like old times right like oh my god look at we go we did this together you know and roland was kind of acting like his old self and then but right away it's just like nope back into the susan drunk land yeah 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 and and i mean it's very it's an ominous way to end the chapter that cuthbert is just like worried he's like his friend has lost his wits he highlights the fact that he had seen the way that jonas plays castles and is scared about that it also makes a point of saying like he doesn't have the same kind of gifts that elaine does for intuition but he does have this very clear intuition here which is totally valid and that that they are headed that roland is headed for disaster and by proxy that means they all are too and he's very scared that his friend is not going to wake up before it's too late yeah yeah yeah, and then um, you know the, the last bit we get is basically some foreshadowing as as Keeper kind of remembers how that came to castles went down. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. I mean, it'll it'll be interesting to think about when we head into this final end game if whatever tactic we saw playing out on that castles board actually sort of plays out IRL. Yeah, all yeah, right, that's true. So, what do you <laughs> think of the chapter? I thought it was really good. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that you kind of felt was coming is starting to yeah. roll out in front of you. We still haven't got all of the climax of the scene yet, but it's on its way. Yeah. And you can definitely feel the tension building mm-hmm. here in this situation. This has probably been the most tense scene of the book since the Rhea in the hut stuff. You know what I mean? The- <laughs> with I mean, I mean uh, there was that snake scene, Rachel. Just uh, reminding that's, you, you know? but that's tension release. <laughs> listen don't blame me it was stephen king wrote it not me (laughs) but yeah i agree this this is a solid chapter even though not a ton happened there you feel you can feel really starting to feel that like the turn the screws getting turned you know and i thought there was really great character stuff with cuthbert and with jonas so i was very entertained by this chapter and very very worried for our little heroes yeah, uh, how are they going to stand up against uh, these guys? And is Susan learning some gunslinger ways? Is she going to help participate in the battle? I hope, I hope. We'll have to find out. I'll tell you what I do definitely want. I want just like four more chapters of Cuthbert shading. Being angry. <laughs> and and just like also just, like, yes, he's, I find him, his wit. And like when he was roasting Reynolds, I was like, yes. I loved it. I would love to hear his witty comebacks. Those those are really hard to write, Rachel. So, you know, you only get a few of them. I guess that's probably true. But they, it was solid. A lot, you know, like one of my biggest pet peeves in books is when the characters all laugh at something that's not funny or when everybody reacts to like a, a burn that is like actually not a burn. I'm just like, <laughs> so when they land, I'm just like, yes. And I feel like Cuthbert, we're told that he's really witty, but we in dialogue, he's also he backs it up with dialogue. He backs it up with internal dialogue. And and so I find I I really like him and I I would love to just watch him roasty toasty everybody. With Have you ever uh, gone through like one of the older books like The Great Gatsby or, or Catcher in the Rye? I mean, and it's supposed to be ago. like a, a a dark insult. Yeah. And you just don't get it because the period yeah. for which it was an insult is long since gone. Yeah, you're like, yeah, scruffy looking nerf herder. Okay, sure, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> awesome. All right. Plans for the next episode. We are going to be covering 
Wizard and Glass, Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 3, Playing Castles. Bum, 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 bum. That oh, sounds ominous. start to heat up. I think it's about to. I think it's about to get spicy, and we're going to find out whether or not Roland really is checked out, or if he's got something up his sleeve. I fear it is the former, but I really hope it's the latter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no connections to the Stephen King universe this time. But uh, so we can just go ahead and talk about the listener feedback and Facebook group questions. So the question I put to the listeners this time, because these last couple of chapters, we've been bouncing back and forth, back and forth between a bunch of different characters and actually kind of getting in the head of a bunch of different characters and contrasting their different voices and motivations and all that stuff. I was kind of curious what everybody's favorite character, like whose head everybody enjoys being in the most. So, do you do you know who yours is? Hmm. Uh, I I'm kind of leaning towards Eddie a little bit. Okay, Eddie's still your fave. Yeah, you know, uh, I, he's a little more modern. And while I'm not a, a drug user of of any kind, it's uh, it, it's still kind of like fun to have that sort of um, '70s esque disco street guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That just makes me makes me kind of smile and smirk. It, it, I know it's um it's painted with a broad brush and like a little satirical, but it it definitely makes me smile. Mm-hmm. It makes me almost imagine like um John Travolta or something. <laughs> fair enough. Fair. Yeah. 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 I mean he, I mean he definitely has a very clear voice. Um, I think I would have probably said Eddie previously, but I think mm-hmm. my new favorite point of view character and or susan because i've also really fallen in love with susan this with this read through but i think my new favorite point of view character is cooper uh i identify with his simmering anger (laughs) because it is also my move (laughs) and his sarcasm um but i also just think he is a well crafted character we've had so little time with him and yet i totally feel like i know him and he always surprises me in the things that he says. And I, I I find him fascinating and fun and likable. And it just, it's another situation where I just really felt myself like longing for another book set between these two time periods. And I want to spend yeah. more time with Cuthbert and Elaine. I really like them both. I And I would love to see more of their stories. And I know that like the, the comics have more of their stories and like it's all depressing ass shit that happens but i feel like there's there is room in the way that we have wind through the keyhole where we could squeeze in a few like even if it was just like a little anthology series of like little short things like different experiences they have on the road or something i would just love to spend more time with these characters because i have just like really really come to love cuthbert he's my kind of character yeah yeah i mean i don't i I don't mind the new characters, but I still have a pretty big open spot in my heart for the old ones because they, they represent more yeah. of the book than the. Oh, for sure. And that's not to say that I don't love those characters. I just there's something extra vivid about Cuthbert for me. And I think it again, it speaks to like who speaks to you says stuff about the character, but also says stuff about you. Right. I'm not surprised that you love the kind of like wisecracking, witty, kind of sardonic character. That doesn't surprise me at all because that is totally your vibe. Like you're funny, sarcastic, and you and you have like a very. So I almost picture it as a cartoon. Oh, okay. So um, if you ever watch any of the um, 
the 90s cartoons or even going back to like the early uh yeah. Warner Brothers stuff whenever they get to a character that's sort of like the Fonz ish uh-huh. or or like uh gangster ish yeah. from the 70s or disco ish they always sort of wrap around the exact same axle mm. and i feel like with Eddie i could almost picture you know like a disco duck yeah. or something like that in any of those, and it always makes me smile because the character that's painted from a distance in those is this like flamboyant, over the top, uh, a crazy uh-huh. party guy. But the part that you'd never get revealed in the cartoon because it's a, a children's show is that on the side, he's also doing a crap load of <laughs> cocaine right, and heroin. Right, 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 right. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah. And so that's the the thing that's painted. So a lot of his um, sarcasm and like tongue and cheek stuff is mm-hmm. more adult, but it's the same style yeah. that they would paint uh, uh, any seventies character in. And then like to also to expose the like, oh yeah, and I do blow too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, this yeah. is the adult. For, this is the adult swim. Got it. Yep. Got it. Exactly. exactly. And you know, what? maybe the reason I like Cooper so much is because he has like big soccer vibes. From Avatar, and yeah. I like Sockeye. I love Sockeye. So I wonder if maybe that's some of what I'm responding to through through cartoon Fair perspective, because you and I are both total cartoon nerds. Total cartoon <laughs> nerds. Okay, awesome. So now, listeners, we got a couple answers. The first one, Sheldon basically said he's not there yet, so he didn't answer. JK. Carissa chimes in, and she says, I love the interaction with the grapefruit glass. So that's that's an interesting take on this. And theories on how it's consuming Rhea and and what it shows or lets her see is fascinating. That's an interesting one because you almost get zero perspective inside the head of the of the glass, right? Right. right. So but at the same time, like, like it's compelling because it's like a mystery. Yeah, you you almost have to like suss around the edges to figure out what's inside. I wonder if she's also trying to like. I wonder if she. Re- I don't know, Carissa. Is this a first time read, or do you? And or are you also just like trying to figure out what the hell is happening here? Unspoiled. Hmm. awesome and then finally tim says first of all oi of course (laughs) which is fair because you know what we actually do get oi perspectives in the wasteland like when he is listening to roland and then watching jake like responding to jake that stuff was really sweet but i think he was just kidding He, uh, he actually said the mind of roland is fascinating Take books two and three, for example. We got to meet and get to know Eddie and Susanna by way of Roland entering their minds. How clever. So many of the best parts of that book took place in the characters' heads. Big reason why I don't think the true film adaptation would work. Which, I mean, I guess they'd have to go, like, full... John Malkovich. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, literally, like, they'd have to have, like, uh, the eyeball perspective and everything. Which could be pretty rad. And, again, probably better in animation. Yeah. The descriptions of Roland coming forward and ultimately taking control of the three are so vivid. And the parts when Roland stops Mort from pushing Jake and uses Mort to rob the pharmacy are riveting. Who else but Stephen King could have written the minds of Roland and Jake uh, being torn in half in the first third of the wasteland? He did it so deftly. A lesser writer would have almost certainly have lost us along the way. I could go on and on. I already have. So I'll stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess the answer really is probably Roland, right? Because he's certainly the most complex and, you know, you go through the most of an arc with him. Yeah. But still, I I would hang with Cuthbert. (laughs) 
I mean, if we were going for like mysteries, Shardik would be the the way I would go. Cause... Yeah. Oh, okay. That's actually a really good follow up question. If the what characters who head would you like to get into that you don't in the books? Oh man. So uh, Blaine and and Shardik are the two that yeah. I would love to like get an inside perspective on. Yeah. Uh, because Blaine, you get all of the blustering, but you don't quite get the kernel of you know when he describes the death of the other train and some of those bits like you don't get the kernel of what that actually means to him right and that meaning is everything and since it's implied as opposed to provided for you you're left sort of filling in all the gaps yeah with shardik it's even more interesting because like you find out there's this history of him you know terrorizing villages right nearby to eating people but like in a very methodical and structured manner mm-hmm. and then he's got like a half robot brain so obviously it's not just you know pure rage he's really thinking about this and doing his his due diligence and so on and, and now finally when the gang meets him he's like off his rocker and his head's filled sure. with, with maggots but man uh-huh. before that like what's the story yeah that's a that's a unique one i would not have come up with that hmm I would be totally down for, like, a Shardik perspective. Novella. Well, I, I think you and I have talked about this before, where it's like, you know what would be cool? Like a Shardik comic or something like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. So I understand why this could never be, because it would be, like, total spoilers. But I would love to get in the head of Randall Flagg. Ooh, yeah, you can't do that. No, I mean, I know I can't. can't. Like, I understand, like, the mechanics of how it all works. But, like, what if there was some coda? That's what I want. I want Randall Flagg his dark tower journey <laughs> right I mean, that that would be a very meticulous and tough book uh, series to write he'd be like dipping in and out of places he'd well, be in the you'd stand have to... he'd be in the freaking you know eyes of the dragon like it'd be cool you'd have to attribute so the the thing is is to keep up keep randall flag up with the story he would have to be uh, an attribute in like the drawing of the three and and so yeah. on like you basically have to mirror every book but then you would have to think of creative ways for his effect to be pronounced on the gang without the gang realizing that he, he's there doing the thing i think he's dips that in and out of the story though so we can find out what he's up to in just little sections yeah like he would their paths would cross like and he'd be doing things behind the scene getting rolling yeah, but I mean, he would also be off doing his own thing in different multiverses. He would, who knows what else he's, what other plates he's got spinning. You know, he'd be doing all kinds of shit because we know Flamando flags in a bunch of the books. And who's to say those are, hap- those are not necessarily happening in a linear fashion. So he, he's splitting, he's like spinning plates all over the place. And I think it'd be super, super interesting to not only see all the things that he's doing, but get his internal dialogue while he's doing them. You toss him like, into a vacation murder mystery and then bring him back. Oh, yes. Again. I would. To- <laughs> yes. Randall Flag solves it. Full drawing room mysteries all the time. Yes, I would. I mean, I would really kind of love to see him do anything. I think he's such a fascinating character. Hmm. All right, cool. So that is it for our listener questions. As always, I put those up the week that we record. So like somewhere like Monday, Tuesday, uh, two weeks from now, there'll be one on the Facebook page. And if you're not already on the Facebook page, you should come over and join the group and chitty chat with us and also answer the questions. Okay, so shall we talk about The Stand episode Dose? 
Let's do it. Now that we've seen a couple episodes, I kind of think I figured out the structure, at least for this first portion, where we're going to be focusing on two characters at a time, one of them that is being drawn to Mother Abigail and one of them that is being drawn to Randall Flagg. Although in the case of Larry, he's kind of a little gray area, right? Yeah. So the second episode, Pocket Savior. So in this one, we start off with Larry. And I think what I'm going to do is instead of going chronologically through the episode, I'm just going to break it up by the two characters. Does that work for you? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because this sort of like loops and and dives back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I was trying to think of a way to to explain this um following the thing and it's like man this is going to get a little confusing like first you're here and, and you're he's there. you know mm-hmm. playing a show and he gets in a fight with his friend and then he's like back here and he's like landing in Boulder and then he's back here again meeting the girl. What? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So okay, so Larry Underwood Underwood uh actually opens the episode as well and we it, when we first meet him he's traveling with a caravan of people heading to the Boulder Free Zone which includes Nadine who's a school teacher and is very pretty and she also happens to have a very familiar rock necklace which I think is going to become significant by the end of this episode dun, dun, dun. and da, da, da. and also a kid named Joe who is seemingly mute due to some sort of trauma that he's experienced. From there, we see the backstory of Larry. He's a very different guy. So prior to Captain Trips, he was a musician and a drug addict. And we meet him on the night of a big performance where his band has all come down with the flu. So he's going to have to play by himself. And he performs. When he's performing, he's confronted by an ex-roommate who accuses him of stealing Stealing his song. Stealing a song. Yes. The next morning, he wakes up from a one-night stand next to a woman who is covered in mucus oh. jesus christ the mucus in this episode is so upsetting it's like stretching out a foot and a half oh. And oh. she's like aren't you gonna kiss me and he like pecks her on the forehead and then pecks away i thought you were that at all <laughs> yeah so naturally he bounces finds out his mother is sick in the hospital he goes there it's a nightmare fucking hellscape and uh larry's mom dies his roommate dies he gets some drugs he ends up meeting first a very a gentleman with a very strange plan oh this guy is great okay okay we gotta stop and pause okay okay yeah yeah yeah. so like larry uh he his roommate crashes his old roommate crashes the car and threatens to kill him and like he comes out the guy's basically died from the disease and like he opens up the trunk finds like a big old giant bag of drugs yeah he's just like yes and he's like sweet and so then he just goes on this bender and he wakes up in the morning and he's like on a park bench does a couple of more uppers and then like looks for his booze bottle and it's empty and this old man in like hospital gown rolls up eating a bag of potato chips (laughs) and it's just like casual friday like hey what's up like you know what i'm gonna do I'm going to walk over to the stadium. He's like, oh, yeah, you're going to hit a ball from, you know, from uh, home base or throw the first pitch or something like that. Uh He's like, no, no, I'm going to jerk off. on the. (laughs) I'm going to run around it naked and jerk off at home plate. It's like, that's such a specific thing. He's like, there's nothing left in the world. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. I mean, he, where is the lie? I mean, it's not what I would choose to do with my apocalypse time, but I don't know. What would you do? What would be your apocalypse move? So, I mean, if you think about it from the old man's perspective, like there's probably a list of things that you would think were funny that you could get 
get out just like right away yeah like, yeah yeah cut like a i don't know a big zebra head out and like put it on posters around town or something like that or, you know <laughs> just like uh, draw kill kilroys in places and like yes kilroys you know, po- pose stuff together like go to the mannequin displays in like Times square and, and pose them in like lewd and uh, uh obtrusive manner just yeah funsies but like that's something you do first as you're like sort of realizing that the world is empty yeah and then eventually you got to get real and like understand that like food is important and that uh there's thousands of corpses in this city and you got to get out of there yeah and, and so I, I thought the the old man that like i actually had to pause it i was crying and laughing so hard <laughs> like, yes not quite my choice but super fun good job yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think I would do like the full '80s movie montage. I try on like all the clothes and drive all the sports cars and do like that dumb shit. That would be my move. Wasn't that sort of the a partial portion of the scene in the original Stand movie? I don't remember, but if you say so, no, maybe I'm wrong. I it might I might be. Mixing I mean, it I up feel like that's Smith the movie. move, right? Like you drive a Lamborghini, you try on all the clothes you can't afford, like you do all the shit that like rich stuff that you could never do, and like. And then you realize that the world is over and get like super depressed. Yeah, but, like there is out... a phase of just like you know joyride. Yeah, you figure out where uh, David Leno or Jay Leno. Why is everybody Dave today? <laughs> you figure out where Jay Leno lives, and you go to his garage, and you test drive every one of his vehicles, and then you have met your life goal, and you can move on. Yeah, definitely. Well, at least Larry gets a little love action here because he meets a woman named Rita. And they hit it off, they bang it out, and uh, decide to leave the city together, uh, which because they realize it smells like a billion dead bodies. Yeah, which... and Rita's already giving you like a creep, creep, creepy vibe, right? Yeah, yeah, like she's got the manic eyes. She's got the like Adderall. I got a gun <laughs> here. Let's let's see how good I am at it. Pew, pew. Again, what? I would probably shoot some guns. <laughs> 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 I think I identify with these people a little too much. I'm starting to get worried about myself. <laughs> Um, and it, they, it, it kind of has this little romantic interlude where they're like, you could almost see this being like a little bit of a love story if it weren't for like, you know, the smell of rotting flesh and the guy running around talking about monsters outside. Yeah. And where did she get the steak to cook for him? Freezer, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it's not her ex-husband. Um, I did love a shot here though, when they're like looking out at the city and you can just see the fires burning all mm. around Central Park. It's yeah, just like... The- great dystopia which when uh he explains to her what the old man's plan was it's like tell him there's a stadium closer by <laughs> right She's like oh that's a terrible walk <laughs> i kind of love rita i'm sad that we end up losing her by the end of this episode because uh i i enjoyed her and i really liked the actor heather graham a lot so i wish she had stuck around a little bit longer but well what are you gonna do it's the end of the world so the next morning they decide to take off and while they're out walking, they get accosted by a basically a rape gang that tries to buy her um, mm-hmm. and have to hide in the sewers. And he suggests they pretend that they're Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in my favorite line of the episode. And Rita can't hang, so she leaves the sewer and he hallucinates uh, his dead mother in the sewer. And then they both basically like head towards the same direction. But they don't really tell you what she was up to while she was up there. She just like kind of pops up again yeah you think something happened along the way so i almost think like when she went back up by herself like gun toting 
and so on that maybe she took out some of those guys that were mm. running around while he was finding himself in the sewer or maybe it was just a matter of like showing that his character was still like a little too weak to be brave enough to stick with her and like protect her i mean i think that's partially true i mean because he's definitely someone who's self-centered well i think he's he's someone who has a good heart but is kind of a lovable loser and kind of thinks that he can't change Ah. like he i think he believes the hype that he's a loser because he's like fucked so many things up in his life but is ultimately not a bad person i mean obviously he's kind of on the verge between both randall and and mother abigail because he's dreaming about them both i also I'm glad that you brought up that idea of like maybe something happened between the times they saw each other because I felt like her switch from like we're having great sex in the apartment to suicide was really fast. Yes. And if there is something some mitigating detail in the between, I don't know that we'll ever find out what it was. Um that would make that character arc make a little more sense. Well, and I, it's been a while since I read the stand, but I was like I wonder right. if there was something that was in the book that we should inherently know there that was a thing i mean like i read some wikis about it because i was kind of like what what's the deal here um and like i guess in the book she's a little bit more erratic and on she's like hooked on a bunch of prescription medications yeah but that doesn't come through in this adaptation yeah the uh, uh original uh movie or television series adaptation like they really played that up i thought they excised this character rita I thought, but obviously I'm wrong. I no, it was, you. she seen... was the dark-haired gal with the, like, gap in her teeth. No, no, no. That's Nadine. Oh. That's, that is the woman he's with now. Okay, then I'm... I'm No, you're right. I'm completely yeah. wrong. Yeah, then they did nix her in the original. Yeah. So uh, we finally come back to present time. They've made it to Colorado, and he's greeted by Stu, who knows him by name, and says that Mother Abigail had a list of people um, and he was the last one on it uh, of people, like five people that she was waiting for. Um, he he goes and meets with her. Um, he won't tell Nadine what she said, but then he goes to meet with Harold, who we find out he's been following his his like messages that he's been writing on the walls across the country mm-hmm. and is excited to meet him, except for that Joe sees, like takes one look at Harold and freaks out, cutting that little meeting short. <laughs> yeah but you can tell where the conversation goes sideways when he yeah. asks about nadine uh, uh, or uh, uh franny 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 yeah he asks about franny and like harold just loses it yeah totally i mean i i know that harold is a bad dude i find him to be to, to still this point is still kind of the most compelling character we've met even yeah. in this little bit, this little tiny scene that he has in this, I feel like he stole the whole episode. So much anger. Like you, yeah. they, he obviously didn't blow up on the guy, but like you can, you can just feel yeah. the icy wind blow by. Totally. And that's why, I mean, as, that, that, and at first like, he was almost it. like warm and friendly, like, oh, mm-hmm. thank you. And then like, he oh was yeah, so what about excited Fran? to get the presents. And then he's like, yeah. Yeah. What about Fran? Yeah. Ugh. The other thing we see is that Nadine um, finds a very spooky planchette game. Uh, so and we'll by planchette, you mean Ouija board, right? Yeah, it just said planchette. But yeah, I mean, I think it's because Ouija board is like uh, TM yeah. <laughs> yeah, Milton Bradley. So she got planchette. <laughs> All right. So what do you think of Larry overall? 
Um, uh, okay, character. Um, I I thought the mom stuff was good. Uh-huh. The bringing in the friend and the stolen song thing was played out so fast. Yeah. That I don't know if it was really necessary. Yeah, I feel like you had to have read the book to understand all. Yeah, of and mm-hmm. and so with that, like I can see as I as we start to go through these, I, I can see where people would sort of be frustrated and not frustrated because yeah, if you're really familiar with the books, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing that's good, but yeah. if you're just watching it, like you're like who? You're like what? Why, why did they even do that? This yeah. is like a, a two second bit before they moved on to something else. Like that doesn't really help the plot. Yeah. Right? Am I wrong? Yeah. No, no, I think you're right. I feel like the prop they're doing the best like in some ways I think they're being very good about being economical but how you tell these this very long, very dense story mm-hmm. in a matter of few episodes without just like completely excising things. But I think almost in this case maybe they tried to pack too much in with Larry because like none of it hit as hard as it maybe could have. I mean, we're only in our first episode with him. He'll probably grow on us. He's a very important character in the books. Um, he is a character that they have made some, I think, really smart changes to, and that in the book and in the original version, he is played by a white man, mm-hmm. um, who and I who like is very appropriative of black culture, and so I think by changing him to like an African American actor, that was the move because I think in 2020, like having him have his song be "Baby Can You Dig Your Man" with some white dude would be really uncomfortable for everyone. <laughs> So I think that was a smart change. Um, and it also like helps to diversify the cast, which I am enjoying. It seems like there's there's a decent amount of diversity and I'm excited about that. Um, and I think the actor was really, really good. I just hope I hope we get some he gets. To, I don't know. I'm hoping as the like whenever we get into the chapter, I'm guessing we're going to see like Nadine and Franny next. Like we'll get a lot of Larry with that. And so I'm hoping we'll get some more depth in that character. I will say his has been the most harrowing of the chapters so far because we had we got to actually see a lot of firsthand stuff of the actual pandemic through him like i felt like it was very like post or removed in the last chapter for the most part and him we got to see inside hospitals and street level stuff and it was pretty creepy so that stuff was was i thought really solid if you go through the uh imdb reviews of the episodes that are out for the stand Uh they are all over the place like dozens of ones dozens of tens dozens of nines and eights and dozens of twos wow so yeah i don't i'm not i feel kind of i felt really high on the first episode and a little middle of the road here definitely not a two give me a break but also not a 10 either but like i think that's um that's indicative of the the way they're covering things mm-hmm. if you don't know then like it could be probably very frustrating for you mm. but if you do know then it's it's a refreshing uh, excerpt from like your favorite whatever yeah mm. that's interesting i'm gonna ask some people who have not read the book if their experience is different they're like if we're feeling like the missing pieces or if they're feeling the missing pieces essentially yeah definitely that, yeah so here, let's talk about the other character that this episode focuses on. Sound good? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, so the other character is Lloyd Heinrich. And when we meet Lloyd, he is a he's a criminal who we see being imprisoned after the murders at a botched convenience store robbery that le- also led to the death of a police officer and some innocent bystanders. And 
I will say there's some really great gore in this scene where we see it. Like, <laughs> where he gets shot and his like jaws like hanging out. Yeah. And this is, these are those moments where I'm like, I'm so glad that this is on CBS All Access and not just network TV because like they can actually really go there. And I do feel like this of the two episodes has definitely been the gory. <laughs> well, that bit where like uh, his partner holds the gun up to the lady's head and then sneezes and accidentally <laughs> pulls the trigger. And he's yeah. like, well, I guess we're in, in, in for this now. Yes. And I, I mean, as a horror fan, obviously, I love it. Um, but so obviously he is very popular in prison. They're cheering when he comes in. The guards, uh, not so much. So that when Captain Trips inevitably comes through and wipes out everyone in the prison, they essentially just leave Lloyd to starve. Tell now, him to drink out of the toilet. Yeah, right? They're like, you can just drink the toilet. You'll be fine. And truly, we saw a dude's face get blown off. We've seen throats slit. We've seen people dying and mucus everywhere. I have never seen anything grosser in my life than when he throws that wad of mucus on his face. <laughs> uh, when i tell you i almost threw up i mean literally i almost threw up now you've never been to like an atari teenage riot show oh god really yeah there's a lot of spitting it was the the mucus like that brownish mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like i had to like take a beat and be like i can't think about this i can't think about this because my i got like a stomach ache. <laughs> so uh, you know do it in incognito mode so that it doesn't follow you on the internet but just go google some gg allen and you'll you'll get that experience over and over i mean i've seen some really gruesome shit but there was something about a face full of mucus dude (laughs) was so upsetting so he is left with no alternative so he tries to eat the rats outside his cell and eventually his cellmate's leg and it's looking pretty bad for our boy Lloyd. Until he actually takes a bite out of the flesh. leg, too. Like, he's, like, <laughs> there's flesh missing. And he's a little sheepish about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So when Randall Flagg shows up, he's just kind of like, uh, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. And uh, eventually he lets Lloyd out, and they agree to go on their merry way together. All right. What did you think about Lloyd? Um, I thought Lloyd was fun. He's, um, so I still have a special place in my heart about the, or the, for the character that played Lloyd in the original 1992 one. Okay. Because he's a a little skeezier. He's like a sitcom guy. He's in like tons of stuff. As soon as you see him, you'll recognize him. He stands out pretty well. Um, This Lloyd like looked a little more pretty boy Uh and a little less like gruesome criminal, more like show offy um, cocky gentleman who has found himself whimsically in a bad spot. The the previous version was like more sinister and kind of like Oh, I see. Yes, 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 yes. I recognize him. Way more grizzled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this guy's like almost baby faced and like, yeah, he's got an eye patch, but it's like almost like a fun eye patch as opposed to a Yeah. I don't know how eye patches are fun, but you know you know what I'm saying. Wait, I just doesn't look as mean. Who has an eye patch? Wait, what? Am I wrong? I well, there is someone eye with an eye patch, but he is back in. Oh the no! Yeah, okay, okay. I'm mixing the two characters together. They that's look, the, Nick, and that's yeah, I think. Um, uh, he looks similar to Nick. Rob Lowe played Nick in the original version. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, this is a. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm wrong. He doesn't have an eye patch. But... <laughs> Sorry for. Okay, so when I when I watched this, um, when the eye patch guy came in. I was like, wait a minute, is that the same guy? 
I mean, he does have that like very. It well, it looks like a dirty version of the other guy. Yeah, like, like it, they're very handsome. Lots yeah, if they handsome. like hadn't shaved and like was like, I'm gonna wear my shirt open. Right. Yeah. But and I think obviously he's gonna be a character that we're gonna get in like one of these episodes on, right? Because he's also a really important character in the series, and mm-hmm. we just get that like little tiny bit of him when we're at Mother Abigail's. Um. But uh, actually, I wanted to tell you something I learned I did not know. But did you know that when the original stand was cast, that the person who was supposed to play Mother Abigail in the original stand, like TV version, was Whoopi Goldberg? What? Yes, she was originally cast, but she had a conflict with Sister Act 2, so she dropped out. But she was supposed to be the original Mother Abigail. That's funny. I I don't know. I think the lady that did it in the original like nailed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So nah, that's you know my opinion on Whoopi Goldberg. I do. I just thought it was kind of random because we had had that conversation. I was like, <laughs> damn, she was almost always Mother Abigail. I don't know. Like maybe younger Whoopi Goldberg could have pulled it off more. You think? O- older Whoopi Gold? Well, no, I don't think so. Because it seems like older Whoopi Goldberg, like they did a lot of makeup to get her to look like Mother Abigail. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel very good. Like the show is done really well on a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. But her- the makeup job on Whoopi Goldberg was just kind of like, meh. And then Whoopi Goldberg kind of just plays it straight and not very frail, but she's supposed to be this like lady that's, you know, ancient years old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she, she plays it a little too crisp. Like she's too like up and around, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Like, I mean, that... I don't know. We, they're, they're definitely playing the, their the rant. We got a little more Randall flag this time, but like they're playing those characters very close to the best. Like they're yeah, very present in both of the episodes we've seen so far, but we haven't really, sp- we definitely haven't spent any time with Mother Abigail, you know. Well, so it's like, kind of still too early for me to have an opinion on her. So I guess whenever I, and obviously I'm like the worst at this, so you know, take it for what it is. But the um, the lady that had like the the very um, very stern face that was like a deputy on Mother Abigail's front porch, mm-hmm. like I almost picture when you you say a hundred year old woman i picture someone like of that build only frail mm, mm. you know what i mean with like a cane and like shaky and like has the granny voice it's like yeah. hey, how you doing and like Whoopi goldberg's like hey i'm fine huh what's what's up you know and it's like well that doesn't portray frail in a hundred years old yeah. that that portrays like 60 ish maybe really healthy 55 year old yeah i mean i I, i'm like i said i'm still waiting to form my opinion but i i totally know what you mean like she definitely isn't what i expected but i want to see what she does with it like maybe she'll sell me i don't know we'll see we'll see but we did get some time with randall flag and last time we only got glimpses of him on the side of the road and in the mirror but we actually he got to deliver some lines and stuff what do you think so far of uh sarsgaard as randall flag uh he's pretty good um getting a little cleaner than i would have liked right he doesn't quite have the um the griminess that i would like to see in him right 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 it's more like a a rhinestone cowboy look as opposed to like a i don't know like a A drifter yeah so did you ever grow up with like the scrawny scrapper kid that like beat people up but was chiseled and like sort of not didn't wash enough but like always had sort of like a, a distinct um almost regal look only dirty i know 
what you're getting at. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, like he, I, I feel like instead of picking him, they picked his like mirrored image, the like really clean cut country singer guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he, I don't know. He, he doesn't come off as as evil as he could if he had a little bit more like, um, I don't know, less shine to him. I think my problem with him is he seems very sane. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that too. I want, I want, I, the thing with Randall Flagg is I like that he's a little, he has charm and charisma, but he feels a little unpredictable and a, a little, like he makes you a little nervous because you don't really know what's going on. And I, I, I really like Peter, Star not Peter. What is this one? There's like so many stars guards. Yeah. And I'm looking through pictures of him and in some of the later scenes, it looks like they do a pretty good job of making him look motley. Okay. That's good. That's good. Um, but in these first scenes at the jail, like he looks fairly clean. Uh, the other weird thing is I, I, I kind of picture him with longer work. hair. Hmm. Interesting. Longer hair. I mean, like they're definitely going like, he's very like kind of rockabilly with his pompadour and stuff. And I mean, the look, I mean, like from a design perspective, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I just feel like. He's definitely doing better than Matthew McConaughey did. For sure. Yes, definitely. For sure. Because he doesn't seem like cartoonish. But I also don't know if I'm getting that like charisma that I need. I don't know. It's early. We've only had the one the one um scene with him. Although like it's very funny when once in a while his little accent will slip through and he's like, baby. I was like, I heard you. I heard you. I'm, I'm posting this in the uh in the Discord chat, but okay. take a look at uh both Randall's. Yeah, and I I think the thing I like about the old Randall is that he's like got mm. a wily kind of I think you nailed it actually like a little bit almost mad like his his um, features are yeah. not centered and yeah. and they don't mirror very well so he has like a, a, a almost like mildly crazed look whereas yeah. uh, this guy he he looks a lot. A lot more uh, regular, I guess. I don't know, and less mad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think because I isn't that kind of the thing with when you think about the conversation he has with the TikTok man, like he's almost like jovial, but yeah, in this yeah. like sinister way. And like I don't proto Jokerish, where it's like, yeah. oh, we'll get this taken care of. And I think that's very, very hard to communicate. Like it's very rare for an actor to be able to like communicate those two things simultaneously um so i think he's doing a, a perfectly fine job but so far i'm just kind of like eh, he's okay he's okay yeah he, uh, he hasn't won me over yet maybe yeah. like he'll have an awesome scene i i almost was hoping like when they did that the scene where it cuts to the dream world mm -hmm. and the hollywood sign is sort of chasing him yeah i i was expecting him to kind of like do something really cool there and instead he's just like kind of sits and ponders you know yeah yeah i i want to know what's up with the the glowing rocks i don't remember those from the book that doesn't mean they aren't in there i just don't remember it yeah but i don't know if that's just sort of like a visual cue because like like i said we see that nadine has one and we see at the end of this episode that he gives one to um lloyd so mm -hmm. presumably that means that he's had some irl contact with nadine if she has one right yeah yeah so i don't know so uh, one more thing i want to toss out at you it, 
what I think would redeem this character and the acting and him playing it. Remember that scene in Tales from the Crypt, the the first movie, where um, what's his name is like dancing on the other side. And he's like doing a little uh, like jig, and then like has sort of the crazy look in his face. In Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, it was um, it's the one with so... Halle Berry in it. One with Halle Berry. I'm pretty sure it's Halle Berry. Wait, wait, are you talking about Tales the movie? Oh, Demon Knight. Yeah, Demon Knight. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So remember, they've got the barrier up. Yes. And like, um, Billy demon... Zane has Randall Flag energy in that. Yeah, I exactly. See what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. when he wanders he, up, yeah. he like does like a. He goes sinister. He goes happy. He does a little jig, like dances, and is like, yeah. No, you're totally right. And like that's almost that. what I want from my from my randall flag is like right? he's like a to be able to cool. be straight faced but then to also like dance in an inappropriate time yes yeah 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 um, there, like a, there's an unsta- instability to him yeah i know what mm-hmm. you mean like i think that maybe this randall flag is a little too cool for school yeah exactly yeah that's actually a really great example i hadn't thought about that but billy zane and demon knight is yeah 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 Yeah, and even when he's dancing with the girl and like she's got the mouthful of um of demon blood or, or uh-huh. whatever it is and, and he's like spinning around like what you know cat got your tongue and he's like he goes from sinister to like a little bit loving to a little bit crazy to like yeah oh, that was man. a good movie i need to go back and watch it i haven't seen that in so long but i totally remembered billy zane from that he like yeah he had like a shaved head and he was super creepy yep yep awesome per- perfect performance for that yeah all right so what do you think overall of the second episode yeah, pretty good. Um, I still think they're on track to not make me mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I mean, it's that's it's like a higher bar than you might think, just to not be like annoyed and pissed off by something that, especially if there's a pre-existing, you know, version that you like. So that's that's good. Yeah, I've been liking it. I, I this episode was less compelling to me than the first one, um, but I did still enjoy it. I'm still very much on board. I mean, and I, I, although I'm ready, I'm ready to um, learn about some female characters. It's been like two episodes in a row that are very dude central. And there are some important (laughs) ladies in the story that I would like to hear some things about. I want to know about Nadine. I want to know about Franny. I want to know about Mother Abigail. I want to know about the lady that greeted them on the, when they got to Mother Abigail's house. I feel like there's a, a lot of women that we're not learning about that I would like to, come on, let's do this. So do we know how many episodes that they're going to be total? There are going to be... in front of me there are going to be eight episodes plus a ninth episode called coda franny in the wall and i don't know that might be the new ending so i think nine episodes total yeah Hmm. there's a new ending to the stand yeah did i not tell you that huh yeah so one of the things that when this happens stephen king rewrote uh, some of the ending yeah so anyway so yeah so there's going to be nine episodes so (laughs) we get to do this seven more times (laughs) (laughs) awesome okay well next episode is called that we'll be covering on the next chapter the next episode will be blank page oh it looks like maybe it's nick and nadine they're gonna focus on i'm not mad at that okay cool (laughs) 
Finally, some ladies. All right. So that is it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show or you have some thoughts on the chapter or the stand episode or really anything, you can drop us a line at castofcaughtzombiegirls.com or you can come over and hang out with us on the Facebook group. We love that. We love the interaction there. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. If you love the show even more and you want even more content from us, you can sign up for our Patreon. For instance, we every episode for Patreon uh, subscribers is an extended episode. And today we are going to be talking about the movie Sleepwalkers on the extended episode for those of you who are sticking around. All right. But for those of you who are signing off, DJ, where else can they find you on the Internet? Uh, you can swing over to deadlander.com and listen to the world famous dead lantern podcast where a lot of it's been being cut lately because uh, we do not want to have some of those discussions to make it on the air yeah i know um, I, we totally hyped my episode and i noticed it was like nope <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh shit <laughs> yeah they, they wanted to get on to like discuss um this week's crazy shenanigans in in dc and i was like well what's the point we're gonna record two and a half hours and you'll have four You're just minutes gonna of content. It. <laughs> um other than that uh you can swing around and check me out on the zombie girls uh um site and that's pretty much it for me uh occasionally you'll see some stuff from etsy so if you're into synthesizers and things like that um, I promise I keep promising art uh, for the Dark Tower yeah. series and I keep lazily not doing it. So maybe I'll make that one of my uh, year goals. Is yeah, New Year's resolution because I'm dying to see the finished product. I've seen the like halfway done and it's so rad. I want to see when you're like done, done, done with it. I get to working on something and then I'm like distraction and then yeah. I work on something else. So. I know that. What about you, Rachel? Where can they find you? Well, you can find me obviously here, but as well, you can find me on the zombie girls uh, where we review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can find me on the stream Queens where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet. You can find me on more deadly where we review horror films that are exclusively directed by women identified directors. And yeah, that's about it. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, you can hear me on the bonus episode with DJ and <laughs> the rest of our Motley crew talking about Oh man, about that, that went sideways in a good way, but it was fun. It was fun. It was really fun. And now the next one, I'm working on editing the next one now, which is also very, very fun. This is the one that Mars is like, I don't remember it. I was too drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some funny stuff that happens on there too. DJ, take us out. Well, folks, uh, just remember that good animal owners do not lick their cat's undersides. So please keep that in mind. <laughs> As you go to sleep tonight, don't lick your cat. Good night. Good night, everybody. I mean, just for the hairballs alone, right? Ooh, oh, bad idea. Yes, and if you have a four-legged udder cat, like, that's just utterly gross. That is utterly gross. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.